Accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're having a wonderful day. We're here to talk about the sixth episode of the first season of Deep Space Nine. This one is called Captive Pursuit. It was season one, episode six, directed by Corey Allen. Story goes to Jill Sherman Donner, and the teleplay goes to Jill Sherman Donner and Michael Piller. Came back, uh, came out on January 31st, 1993. In this episode, Tosk arrives on the station and befriends Chief O'Brien, but is soon pursued by the hunter who follows him through the wormhole. We're joined by Kyle of Trexpertise. Kyle, how are you? Hello, how are you doing? Good, good. We're going to be talking about Captive Pursuit. We got done talking about Babel a little while ago. We were both sort of unimpressed with Babel. <laughs> I actually found it, um, there's not a lot to talk about with Babel. When you end up talking about the lighting of things, you're kind of wading into dangerous territory in terms of uh, podcast content. But we're going to be talking about um, an episode where people are hunted for sport. So I imagine there's a little bit more to talk about this one. What do you think? Oh, yeah, this is a, this is actually a pretty great episode by my estimation. I'm going to play an audio clip, and me and Kyle are going to come back, and we're going to discuss Captive Pursuit. Have you nothing similar in your own society? Centuries ago, people in my world engaged in blood sports, killing lower species for pleasure. A few cultures still do, but even they wouldn't consider hunting a sentient being. Well, he is sentient only because we have made him sentient. He has been bred for the hunt. His entire reason to exist is the hunt, to make it as exciting as interesting as he can. Obviously, you do not comprehend. I comprehend just fine. I have no tolerance for the abuse of any life form. Abuse? We honor Tusk, the other symbol of all that is noble and courageous. They train and condition themselves all their lives for this event. They're proud of their role in our culture. I can't judge what is right and wrong for your world. But on this station. In the future, passage through the anomaly will be considered out of bounds for the hunt. Will that satisfy you? All right, so alien hunting, a lot of uh, mystery, a lot of mysterious things going on, all that kind of stuff. Captive Pursuit is the appearance of Tosk. It's the first episode where someone actually comes from the Gamma Quadrant into the Alpha Quadrant, which is surprising that it took six episodes to get to that point, but here we are. So, Kyle, how do you want to uh, start off this one? You mentioned that it was a, you would say, borderline great episode. I don't know if I can follow you down that rabbit hole, but I guess you can uh, let us know why you think that in the first place. Uh, okay. Um, well, yeah, I'll, I'll stand by that. It's a very weak greatness, um, but I think it's an unrecognized great, episode a gem if you will of the first season which is a pretty rough start for ds9 and this episode really establishes a couple of things uh that have become important throughout the rest of the series um the story was more or less good um the pacing was good the the slow clunky exposition that we briefly talked about in babel was there but it was useful so I don't know what the problem was with the previous episode, but Captive Pursuit, I thought, was a pretty strong entry for DS9's first season. I think that the um, 
one of the tropes that Star Trek does a lot, and I think all genre TV does this a little bit. It might probably my biggest problem with the episode is that it's it's one of those episodes where a character is mysterious, and they say, "Why are you so mysterious?" And he goes, "I can't tell you why," and there's no good reason why he can't tell them why that is the uh, the case. And this one, they claim that he has a vow of silence, but the vow of silence seems to mean nothing because once you're discovered it doesn't change anything people can help you again and you seem to have no problem with it um the vow of silence in the episode seems to be the point of it seems to be that you're not allowed to ask other species for help kind of um and he ends up doing that at the end anyway so it doesn't really matter but i'm getting ahead of myself i find that captive pursuit is a good episode that is more interesting in how it's setting itself apart from TNG in a lot of ways. Like the the right. resolution here is nowhere what TNG would ever consider to be the proper thing to do. Um, it most reminds me of that episode, oh Pegasus from TNG, where Riker goes against uh, the orders of Starfleet and Picard, and he gets sort of reprimanded at the very end, and then he walks off. This one is kind of the same thing that happens <laughs> to O'Brien, except it's much more interested in what kind of sacrifice O'Brien has made, even if it's not really a sacrifice. It's more that um, he gets yelled at for a couple seconds before everything resolves itself and he's actually not being yelled at. Um, so how, how do you want to start this one? I think there's a there's a big issue of the sort of moral dilemma of what the aliens are doing compared with how TNG and DS9 would approach this. I don't know if you wanted to get into anything else before we sort of get into that can of worms. Um, no, that's a good place to start. Um, it's it's kind of a prime directive episode, sort of, without you know the warp capable uh, line in the sand, for example. Yeah, without finding a planet, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the and Tosk himself is strange, and he doesn't really give any reasoning as to why he he can't talk about what he is and what he's doing. But um, on the whole, I thought that this episode, because of the conversation at the very end that you mentioned is kind of emblematic of what DS9 is trying to do both in front of the camera and behind the camera. To me, this episode is like, its greatness stems from the fact how, how strongly they emphasize the point that they are going to be a gray area for Star Trek and not be um, the original series of the next generation. Yeah. Yes, I 100% agree with that. And I think that it, if anything, I'm almost more... It's almost more window dressing in a lot of ways, I guess would be my main problem with this one, because they take a what they do is they allow this Tosk creature to escape and sort of live his honorable life and everything like that, which feels like that would have been the outcome in the TNG episode, except they would have done it more diplomatically, I guess, like Picard would have sort of worked for a solution against the other alien race and made them sort of realize the error of their ways. He might not have changed their opinion about what they're doing, but he would have somehow worked the situation to allow that to happen. Um, in this one, O'Brien takes more of like an action route to fix things. He takes things into his hands uh, in a way that Picard probably wouldn't have done. But the end result is kind of the same thing, which I think is disappointing in that I'm not sure... On this series, if you're trying to push the moral gray area of this, I feel like there needed to be more of a conversation about the like the moral relativism of what they're saying is between the Federation and these hunters here. Um, because they're not really... They disagree with it, but not strongly enough to tell them that they're wrong for doing it. 
Right. Does that make sense? And that feels very TNG to me. Um, and I, I think that they probably, I don't know if it's too early in the series for this really, but it feels like there's more, there should have been more of a fight from O'Brien's angle when O'Brien seems to really be more interested in making sure that Tosk gets what he wants, even if what Tosk wants seems to be the wrong thing to the humans. Hmm. Does that make sense? Um, he's doing what he's doing because he's his friend. Otherwise, he would just fall back on Starfleet regulations and let what happened happen. Sure. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, and basically, like, he's more he's more interested in sort of doing what his friend wants, being the friends to Tosk, than he is that there's any sort of um analysis of like the the ethics of what's actually going on here they pay very little lip service to the fact that people are being hunted for sport in this episode you know what i mean mm. that and that's kind of an odd thing and they even you know the the they're not called the tosk i guess they're called the hunters i don't know if there's a name for those aliens who look ridiculous uh they the way that they look might be the worst part of the episode uh, it- yeah, those uniform, uniforms are really a, a, a fashion crime. <laughs> They're very much a Power Rangery or something to me. Oh, like my that. goodness, yeah. Yeah, it's just, do, do, I guess it sounds to me like you didn't think that that was uh, that big of a misstep on the terms of the show, that they didn't really seem all that interested in, like, what the kind of, like, barbarousness that was going on. They were very willing mm. to accept that this was the outcome and that just because Tosk wants something to happen this way, it makes sense that it should happen that way. Well, I thought they illustrated the... Uh, the problem adequately for my taste through Cisco, like he he was obviously he had a moral problem when talking to the hunters about what was happening with between them and Toss, but he he couldn't do anything. His hands was were tied because of you know Starfleet regulations. And if this were a next generation episode, I think that Picard would have been in, in the same boat. Like he would have probably said some strong words to the Toss or to the hunters, and his hands would have felt dramatically tied uh at this at the same point in in a, a similar episode in a hypothetical next generation episode but picard would have probably allowed the hunt uh, the tosk character to be taken back alive i think yeah um he picard does break prime directive regulation and, and first contact regulation on occasion but the difference in how cisco breaks it it's He's, it's a less principled stance. Like, there, through O'Brien, the show is more interested in what happens to the individual and not the the larger ethical, like, prime directive style kind of conflict that's, you know, naturally happening in this episode. Right. And and I'm not... Sh- I, I think that's the same as before that I was mentioning where DS9 is sort of establishing itself as a kind of a gray area spot. Maybe they're less concerned with the prime directive than Picard would be. I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah. I thought those concerns were, for me, adequately addressed through Cisco's resistance to the idea of just letting the hunters have their way. Because in the end, he was prepared to, you know, let them take Tosk back to wherever until O'Brien actually did something. Yes, right. And that's the... Yeah, he, he Cisco's... Cisco is just sort of waiting for someone else to take an opportunity, I guess. And then he, at that point, he's willing to um, be the accomplice in that situation. Um, it's, it's tough for me. Like how, how do you think that the TNG episode of this would end is important, I guess, because I, to me, the big difference is just sort of the wink and a nudge that Cisco gives to O'Brien at the very end. And I can't see that being the case for Picard that that's not that kind of a personal relationship you would have. 
Um, yeah. I would imagine that a TNG episode would end with him chewing out the subordinate. Um, they leave the room, and then Picard says something to himself about how he would have done it. Like that's <laughs> that's the kind of relationship he had. Cisco is more willing to say, "Yeah, you were right. Don't don't worry about it." Um, yeah, I. I it's tough for me because I, while I understand what the episode's kind of going for, I feel like it, there's a, an area there that it almost doesn't reach in terms of whether or not this is the right thing to do. Like, is would you say that on the moral level, it's right to send the Tosk back or to not... Um, mm-hmm. Like, it, they, they do the clever thing of he making him not want asylum, which right. is which is smart. That gets rid of that whole problem. I don't know if you're going to have this kind of an episode, I feel like you almost have to explore. We're butting up against the rule of the prime directive here, but is this a case where the prime directive is wrong kind of a thing? Mm. And they say it's wrong here, but I feel that they don't really address the, like the, the morality of this situation, which is objectively like a horrible thing that's happening on the other side of this wormhole. Um, even if the Tosk likes it, do you think that, because the fact that the Tosk likes it somehow changes the, like, Starfleet's responsibility towards him somehow. I think a little bit, yeah. Um, I think that, well, yeah, I think so. Like, when he refused asylum, I think it was sort of giving the Starfleet characters a pass. Like, you know, you can let happen what's going to happen. It's okay, I refuse. And that, you know, that really does give him a kind of pass. But, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, and I think that, I think that the thing about the episode is that it is a Prime Directive-style episode. It is about moral relativism. But the thing that's different here than what would be on the Next Generation's Enterprise is that it's a moral relativism argument on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. O'Brien realizes he could break the rule or change the rules of the game. Like, that epiphany would not have happened on the Enterprise. Right, yeah. Picard would have been the guy in charge of breaking the rule, and he would have owned up toward it and then... stared out the window of his ready room, you know, longingly. Um, but, you know, the they realize that both the Hunter and Tosk have to go through the rules of the game because that's the way their culture is, and the Starfleet characters have to do the same thing. In that last scene when Sisko's chewing out O'Brien, and boy, let me tell you, I'd really hate to be yelled at by this guy. <laughs> it makes it feel personal. By the end, they both realize that, like Tosk and the Hunters, they have to go through the motions of following the rules. And again, this ties back to my original point. This is basically the philosophy for DS9 as a whole. Even from a production standpoint, this is the philosophy of the show uh, with the whole circumventing the Roddenberry no-conflict rule between the main characters and all that. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Like, I think as a story, as a standalone, it's not as strong as other Prime Directive-like episodes. Uh, But in terms of, like, a DS9 episode, I thought it was... This is where my you know, attitude that it might be a unrecognized great episode of the first season because it really, all the DS9 grayness is on display. And I, th- I think that maybe, maybe the story is a moral relativism argument on both sides. Like maybe the Starfleet characters can be, that's giving them permission to be more gray and the, the silly Tosk Hunter situation is just an excuse for the, the, the O'Brien and Cisco to come to a mutual understanding about where they are in the universe, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, 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 th- I, I, I agree with you. Um, it's a very, it's obviously the show is trying to push against the 
rule sets that they've established so far. It's a lot of the, you know, the writers coming off of things like TNG and just saying like, well, we weren't allowed to write stories that were like, why is this the case for the Prime Directive? And a lot of, you know, I find Prime Directive episodes to have the the biggest problem with them. And this episode might actually be one of the better ones, in my opinion, because it actually does get around the TNG problem of, um, do you remember the TNG episode uh, Home Homeward? The seventh season, that's the one where Worf's brother, uh, his adopted brother, sort of rescues those people. His brother Nikolai. Yeah, Yeah, his brother Nikolai. Well, if people don't remember, it's the one where Nikolai has, like, sort of been studying this uh, primitive race that the Federation can't make contact with because they're too primitive. Their planet is going to explode or something. So Nikolai beams them into the holodeck, and they trick them into thinking that they're still on the planet. They're just going on a journey to a new place where they'll be safe. And then Mm -hmm. they bring them to a new planet and beam them down. The Prime Directive, to me, like the TNG flaw, was always that that story was a terrible episode because it turned our heroes into villains who basically said, because the rule says that we can't help these people, we're okay with them being murdered, basically, <laughs> um, which is a huge kind of problem for the series if you're trying to portray these people as heroes. Mm. And here they get around that and they fix it. I still, I'm not sure it's like a... It's a great move for the series. I'm not sure if it's a great episode because I would have liked it to go a little bit farther, but I... That's the general takeaway I get from is that it's an episode that was written to sort of fix that kind of problem that TNG had moving into it. I can see that. I can see that. And I think that the uh, I, I'm comparing a lot of things to TNG. We are going to be moving away from this. But I think at this point, that comparison is you you don't have enough of Deep Space Nine to stand on its own, right? At this point, you kind of need to compare it to what it's being built off of. Right. Uh, and I uh, do you, do you think that's a valid point of contention or do you think that I'm I'm being a little bit too much of a look into the mirror and see what TNG is looking back at us? No, 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 I think that's um I think that's exactly on point. I mean, the whole first season is kind of largely about distancing themselves from the Star Trek we know previously and it's the next generation that really is, you know, fresh in everyone's mind at the time period. Yeah. Yeah. Do you I mean, you can speak more in like broad terms as opposed to this kind of an episode, but do you like what's your sort of we were all struck by the pilot by how much they were trying to push. Would you agree with that? Like, as we were saying in the uh, the pilot, Cisco's interactions with Picard are so aggressive that it actually makes you sympathetic to Picard and not the new character. Mm. Um, and I feel that this one is, it's an episode built around sort of playing off of that difference there. Even though it's it's set up very much on a TNG of we'll befriend this person, we'll kind of learn about them and all that stuff. A very Star Trek-y thing. And it really just comes down to the resolution of the end, which, in my opinion, maybe doesn't go far enough. Like, are you are you were you a little bit disappointed? Do you think it's appropriate that uh, O'Brien doesn't really get punished in this episode? Would you agree? Oh, no. I mean, the yelling is one thing, but no, nothing about a reprimand, no reprimand privileges, whatever. Right. And to get a little bit nerdy, he's the only he's the non-commissioned uh officer or not an officer he's not an officer so you can't really demote him or anything he's just kind of a guy who uh, exists in starfleet yeah and i I, that was my problem with the pegasus episode is that the pegasus episode ends with picard saying to Riker, you know there's going to be repercussions of this and then they walk out and the credits roll and there's no repercussions from it whatsoever (laughs) um do you think that it's thematically appropriate to this story did it leave you wanting a little bit to see a little bit of something happen to o'brien um I mean, he probably should have had something happen to him. Uh, but I felt like I felt like it was okay because Cisco is on the same page. Okay. 
Like I was given permission to excuse his behavior because he was nice to his friend Tosk, but especially because Cisco's like, wink, wink, it's all good, man. Yeah, and I mean, tying into that, I, I wonder if it's just sort of the resolution, like the scene where Cisco tells Odo to not not worry about things, like don't <laughs> take your time, and then they they film uh, Rene Aubergenois walking away for approximately twenty seven seconds, which is legitimately funny uh, to me. It's like just he's like it's like the first time he enc- Odo encountered that kind of mentality from a human, and he's like okay. And then, like that, actually was a surprising moment for me. Did, did you do you find that believable from the Odo standpoint? Um, no, no, I, I don't, don't. I don't either. Why don't you explain why you don't think that? Because I, I, he's a stickler for the rules. He yeah. never fires a, a, a phaser or whatever. He he never releases people from his cells without you know a valid reason from another you know policing authority. He's very much a stickler and. On occasion, later in the series, he ignores some stuff on Cisco's recommendation. But otherwise, this guy's like so squared away, <laughs> right? And he, the his, his checklist is enormous, and he checks everything every day. He's we've come. Uh, we talked about how the series is basically the western of Star Trek, where you know mm. it's the dad and his son moving off to the frontier after their wife dies. They've got the doc, young hotshot doctor. Uh, the Bajorans are basically Native Americans. Um, and Odo in this situation is the sheriff, right? He's the right. he is the deputy who is always about justice and always about the law and loves the rules and everything like that. And I found it, yeah, just it's totally with what you were saying. I find it sort of unbelievable that he. I'm fine with him going along with it, but I feel that they need to have a disagreement for about twenty seconds about yeah. it. Yeah, you know, right. or or some kind of justification from Odo's end about you know getting along with Starfleet or something. I don't know, like right. It, yeah, he needed something. I agree. Yeah. So, and I do. Have, I mean, it's a very it's a very uh, comedic thing of him walking away, sort of looking back every couple of seconds and then getting on. But it's it did feel it did feel weirdly uh, non Odo like. And I guess this is I don't I can't remember if this is the first time he mentions he doesn't use phasers. Um, I feel like that is a kind of character story that's running into the the budgetary problems of the show where I feel that this character would not use phasers because he would somehow use his shape shifting to get around mm. it and he does not ever do that and he actually gets uh he gets punched in this episode, right? And he gets knocked down. Oh, yeah, he does. That's right. Yeah. So so he's he's uh he's not really T1000 at this point due to budgetary limits uh limitations and I I find that his non-violence thing because he, he, he's not nonviolent, really. You know what I mean? He's, no. So his his use of a how do you justify the, his non-use of a phaser? What do you think that is about that character that wouldn't do it? I have no idea, and that's a question that's been on my mind with Deep Space Nine the entire time DS 9s existed. It it just doesn't make any sense to me. And in my own personal view, I actually find it a little more barbaric. Like phasers are. You know, you could you could stun someone to sleep. And yeah, it's a hundred effective of taser, right? It's a hundred percent effective taser, basically. Right. It's like the perfect but, weapon. But instead, Odo's gonna punch a guy a couple of times. Like that's gotta <laughs> hurt, man. That is not Starfleet at all. And so, like, I have no idea why this character decides to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. But he sticks by that the entire series, and that's the kind of character he is when he he's stubborn and he sticks by things. And in that respect, it's Odo like, but. I don't know. Yeah, outside of that, it's it's a little bit difficult. I think that the um, I I felt that this episode on a character level 
was much better. This is an episode that was written for this show um, in a lot of ways, as opposed to right. Babel, which was just a transplanted <laughs> script. Um, we continue our aspect I mentioned in the previous episode about customer service here. Here it's about we have an alien come in. How about, O'Brien, you show him around a little bit? That would be nice. Like get, ask all, Answer all his questions and everything like that. Um, good and better character work here. O'Brien is good consistently. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. The Odo scene where he captures Tosk is probably the most Odo-esque scene that we've had so far, where the, the I, character felt right there. I agree, and it was actually a really cool moment, too, because Odo is, like, in complete control of a situation, uh, and that's, you know, he's really smug about being in control of situations, so, like, that's a moment where you get a complete slice of pure Odo-ness, him trapping Tosk. Right. I was, I was a little bit... Um... It's probably more budgetary reasons. I was a little bit surprised there wasn't a that they had more of a physical interaction. The Tosk giving up to me feels like that goes against the Tosk's entire existence, right? Like, hmm. why why would he allow himself to be arrested? Right, that, that seems against everything that this character is about. I thought that they'd have a scene where the Tosk went invisible, tried to do something. Odo had to sh- uh, shapeshift or something to stop him from doing it. And that would be the resolution that they actually do physically stop him as opposed to him saying, okay, I'll go with you. I won't fight anymore. Yeah, I wonder why they made that decision. When he got captured by Odo, I was thinking, because um, I hadn't seen this episode in a while, I really had forgotten, um, that that's what happens to Tosk when they get ca- cornered. Like they just give up, the hunt's over, that's how it works. But then later when he's, you know, punching the Power Ranger hunters. <laughs> right. Um, you really get a. It really doesn't play well. So maybe it was because these are O'Brien's people, and he didn't want to do anything dumb. But he never illustrated that as a character. Tosk right, said anything. Yeah. So I, I, I don't. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why he didn't resist more strongly? Yeah, and because because I thought that it's only really a concern because leading up to that, I thought they did a really effective job of making the Tosk paranoid, but not. Not so obviously paranoid or, you know, where he's not constantly mentioning like, oh, I got to get away from the hunters and stuff. And everyone goes, oh, what are the hunters? Like he's he's paranoid in a believable way about running into a race of people that he's never experienced. But he does have this underlying fear of he needs to know everything about this station. He needs to know where the the doors are, basically, in case things go wrong. Um, And I thought that they did a good job about that, making it uh, not as obvious as to what was going on until the hunters actually appear and they kind of. They're their own thing, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, I agree. The the hunt logic, I guess, was my only real note here. Um, I, I felt that the... And sorry to do another comparison, but uh, it's the TNG uh, episode where they have the super soldiers and one of them gets on board the Enterprise and he tries to like escape from them for a while. Uh, yeah, what is it? That one's called... Well, as, if you're looking it up, I can I'll think about what I'm trying to say, which is that episode we had the big criticism of it's called uh, the hunted, the hunted. There you go. So that episode had the problem of um, we spent too much time watching a action sequence where uh, the, that prisoner was trying to escape from the Enterprise, and our criticism of the episode is that TNG was not really a show that could handle showing us a super soldier in action like it's just, it's not filmed that way the budget isn't there like they can't do those effects and everything like that so mm. it comes off a little bit wonky um the tosk escape i actually thought went on a little bit too long as well i i thought that i would have rather had o'brien do his little trick to set free tosk and tosk just sort of runs off into a crowd of people and that's the last you see of him in some yeah. ways 
Um, yeah, that would have made way more sense. Why didn't they do that? Why are we crawling around in Jeffrey's tubes? Or... Right, and, and sort of like guys with grenade launching laser weapons are getting like double axe hammer smashed by toss. <laughs> it just it doesn't it doesn't it didn't feel correct that he's this good at sort of um, fighting them when it feels like the whole thing is he should be evading them the whole time. Yeah, actually, that is uh, that's a valid point. I think. Okay. So you, um, but you uh, did you have did you have any sort of did you feel that the ending was fine with what they went with in any uh, sort of way? Like that sort of escape route is something that you you didn't mind while you were watching it, or is it more of a just a thing that when you think about it, it's just kind of off? It, it felt like fluff to me. The, the the Jeffrey's tubes or whatever the DS9 equivalent are called. Yeah, that that felt like just you know they needed an extra two minutes to fill in for between commercial breaks or something. But what they should have had him do is exactly what you said: run off into a crowd, head for the sp- the airlock. Or they meet this old, the evil Power Ranger B squad at the airlock and have the little showdown they did in the hallway. And that would have made I guess, more of a logical sense to me. I, I didn't understand why they're crawling in Jeffrey's tube. Right. Yeah. It's well, they, they originally had filmed <laughs> five minutes of Rene Augenois walking towards the elevator, but they're like, we can't, we can't, we can't show all five minutes. So we'll just, we'll have them no, crawl no, through it's, Jeffrey's. It's 2017. He's actually still making his way <laughs> to the elevator. <clears throat> Take your time, Constable. Uh, you know, I'm glad I'm glad uh, that I watched this episode because I'm going to take that moment and stick it into a Trexpertise video somewhere. It's too good not to, to play with. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the other thing. Just, yeah, just say, like, we'll come back after this break and then just show <laughs> Odo just walking off into the thing. That's yeah, actually really good. It's a, it's a, it's a, I like this episode. Um, I think it's... I think it's good. Wikipedia here, I'm just looking at it. They disliked the formulaic nature of the plot. Uh, that's like one of those Rotten Tomato reviews I just look at. I don't really understand. I I don't feel it's... Would you would you describe it as formulaic here? I mean, it's not like it's a barn burner, brilliant new idea that we've never seen. But I feel like it's not... Like Babel is the formulaic plot, I would say. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, th- this I one felt a little better. It's Star Trek formula to a degree, you know, the stranger who's enigmatic and he's in trouble. Sure. We're but... 300 episodes into it. Like, everything's <laughs> going to be, you know, yeah. it's form- as you say, it's formulaic in that way. Um, but generally, the outcome was a little bit more of a DS9 bent. And in that respect, I think the episode probably bucks even Trek formula even a little bit. Yeah. I think that yeah. makes it a valuable, like a good first season entry for sure. I wouldn't call it formulaic. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I'll just give a, a little bit of feedback here. Writing for Tor.com, uh, Keith DeCandido praised Captain Pursuit despite, in his opinion, the weakness of the first season of Deep Space Nine prior to the episode duet. DeCandido noted that Captain Pursuit was a good Prime Directive-themed episode with interesting alien cultures. He described Colmini as magnificent. He said that Scott McDonald gave a superb performance. He's the Tosk. Uh, mm. He gave it a 7 out of 10, calling it a good, solid, well-put-together episode anchored by two excellent performances. I think I, I think I'd agree with that. I can't really disagree. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, uh, Cole Meany O'Brien, he's always good in an episode by himself, ninety percent of the time. And this one, he really did well. You know, like he felt his struggle, and 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 you saw how he kind of liked Tosk and wanted to help him. And it, it was, and he's grumpy at the same time. Like he, when he yells at Cork, hey, yes, Barkeep, <laughs> don't uh, call me Barkeep. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I thought I thought that was probably the best. Part of the episode is watching O'Brien, you know, be O'Brien. We can wrap it up with kind of a um, a thing, a, a little a, a thing about O'Brien, right? Like uh, Cole Meany has been 
put onto this show, the rationale was that the producers of TNG thought he was too good to be stuck in the transporter room, and they wanted to sort of let him branch out a little bit. Uh, so they moved him over here. When we did the pilot episode, I had notes on each of the characters, and they were all kind of um, very specific character notes of like, Odo is the person who doesn't know where he's from. Uh, he's the shapeshifter. Cisco, the angry guy who doesn't want to be here. I had a hard time in the pilot describing O'Brien. Um, and do you think that this episode gives any insight into him as a character? Is he still just sort of the bland everyman? Um, and if he is, is that a problem for the show? Um, I think this, there's insight to O'Brien's character here. He is very competent as an engineer. We've already established that. And the, the next generation never really established that for him. So suddenly he's like way more of an expert. And maybe they figured that out in Emissary for him. I, I, don't, I don't remember. But in this episode, we saw a hint, a sliver of the O'Brien that we saw uh, back in The Next Generation when we were dealing with Captain Maxwell and the Cardassians, like the veteran O'Brien. Right. I think he was willing to punch a guy. He was willing to break the rules. Uh, he was willing to be his own man in a morally gray universe all of a sudden. And I thought that uh, that was what shined about O'Brien's character work in, in this episode. It's like, I don't know. He is a blue-collar everyman. He's grumpy. He must suffer. But at the same time, like, you get insight into the kind of thing that would motivate him. And it's never he's never been motivated by seek out new life and new civilizations like Picard might be. Uh, he's motivated by exactly the kind of things that are in front of him, basically his friends, you know. That's the thing he goes to war for. That's the thing he... Uh, <clears throat> it, later on in DS9, when he does that weird undercover work thing, and then he goes back, like, he gets to know the people he's sort of infiltrating or something. Yeah, And yeah. the reason he puts himself himself and his life at risk is because he's made a personal connection with people. And I think that is different. Uh, for a Starfleet character to do. Like, yeah, Picard yeah, would yeah. risk his life for a person he's never met. But O'Brien probably wouldn't do that. You know, maybe he would, but more likely, if he gets to know you, then he will fight for you. And I think that this episode really cements that in into stone. Like, he, he doesn't know this guy, Tosk, not really, but it feels like he does. And he really, really I guess, apparently risks his career to, to save the guy. Yeah, he, d he does it all on gut instinct, too, because he has multiple meetings where they're like, what do you think? He's like, I just I just kind of like the guy. <laughs> like, I'm just yeah. going to do that. I, I don't have any reason. I know he's <laughs> lying to me. I know he's hiding something, but I, I kind of like him. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that he's um I think that's a really good way to describe him is that he's the he's the most untethered from regulations out of all the officers. It has a, has a lot to do with the fact that he's not an officer. He's just kind of a guy who works in Starfleet. He doesn't have a rank or anything like that. But uh the episode itself does a good job of just exposing that as his sort of Mm -hmm. uh MO. He he's the least Starfleety <laughs> of the Starfleet officers in this series. Right. And he has the least um, amount of importance put into those kind of regulations. He is the anti-Picard in that kind of a way. Um, yeah. And he's he's just much more of a, a blue collar. I think the performance is always good. Colmini is always excellent in this role. Um, and I think, yeah, he's, he's obviously going to go places. But I think it's a good place to uh, position him as that being his role. Hmm. There is one thing I'd like to bring up, um, and it was briefly mentioned uh, on the Memory Alpha, like, behind-the-scenes information, but I, I noticed it right away as I was watching the episode. Tosk has, like, a personal 
cloaking device. And yes. he's got reptilian skin. And he's from the Gamma Quadrant. I think that there's like a, a hint of dominionness happening in this episode. Uh, and I don't know if that's intentional. I'd kind of doubt it. Yeah. But I, I was thinking about the dominion when we first met this guy. I really want. Yeah, I mean, he... And the sort of... The ethics of the hunt, right, feels very dominion-y in a lot of ways. Like, it, yeah, it's... He, you're breeding you're breeding for this purpose and therefore it's good i mean if i were trying to you know connect it to the rest of the canon i would say that tosk is a species uh created by the same people who create the jemhadar yeah and that that would be a natural conclusion i would bring so like this episode they don't go too deeply into that they probably should have added a couple of lines to make it a deeper connection but at the same time like you get a hint of what the gamma quadrant is about you kind of get a little bit of a taste of the kinds of weird stuff that happen over there. And when you go meet the Dominion, that's exactly the kind of stuff you get. Yeah, yeah. Ma- manufactured species and weird cultural practices. Do you, do you um, as I mentioned at the top, it took six episodes to see the appearance of something from the Gamma Quadrant. Why do you think that is the case? Um, do you think they weren't ready? Or do you think that they wanted to give a little... They wanted to have a little bit of this is normal TNG type stuff before introducing audiences to something totally alien to them. Like they don't really have it, but they they'd want to have like a Klingon episode. There is no Klingon episode, but they'd want to have that kind of like this is the Trek universe. It's not totally head over heels, so don't worry about it for a couple episodes. You know, I'm I'm not sure. I I mean, DS9 as a whole is a series that had uh, a debate about this serialization versus long form story arc and. You could tell when certain tribes of the production team were winning out over the other in this respect. So I'm not sure if they had an overall plan for the first season in terms of connecting it to their larger story arc. If they did, then it makes sense to wait this late. It makes sense to set up DS9 as an outpost first and then slowly introduce the Gamma Quadrant to them. Yeah. But I don't know if they had that much of the... Um, foresight over- into things. For- yeah, I mean, by the third season, they they definitely had the foresight they were going to run with the whole series with but at this early in the game i honestly don't know yeah and if they didn't yeah. then yes they waited too long but if yeah. they did then maybe not yeah 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 i think i i think i agree with that uh did you have anything else you wanted to add to this before we do to a final wrap-up um i've gone through no. all my notes yeah i think i'm i think that's that's pretty much it i just do i do want to reemphasize that the hunters look ridiculous um Power Ranger B Squad. Let's just be honest. <laughs> you can't put Christmas lights onto a sash uh, on the show anymore. And like, I, I wonder how this would look in remastered high definition. I know that'll never happen, but it's um, glorious and ridiculous at the same time. Is it? Is it something you notice when you go back and watch? Are you? Are you, we've this this podcast has gone through TOS and TNG, so we're used to the remastered versions of everything at this point. Mm. It's a little bit. It is tough. Uh, one of the guests on the pilot just said that. It's tough getting into this one just because it looks, it just does not look good at this point. Like it's, it, everything's a little bit blurry. It's all washed out. <laughs> you mentioned before it's overlit and everything. Um, is that something that you think weighs on your mind when you're watching it or are you past it at this point? Uh, it weighs on my mind particularly strong because I go in and grab, uh, screen grab portions of these shows um, for Trek expertise. Like I, I see the, the difference is light years. You know, like DS9's quality is really terrible. And I, I know that's not what the production, you know, built. I know that's the next generation, like when they did the facelift for that one, I mean, it was incredible. It was night and day. Yeah. And uh, it really does kind of hurt a little bit to watch, you know, 
Deep Space Nine or any of these other later Star Trek shows without the high high definition. It it hurts, and uh, I really hope they translate DS Nine. But I, I definitely notice it. I definitely notice it. I feel Deep Space Nine is actually if you if you were to sort of wave a magic wand and give me one series to redo, I feel it would be Deep Space Nine because I I feel like the set and production design of this series suffers the most from you not being clearly able to see things where. The other series are more well lit and like everything is brighter. So you can kind of get by with a fuzzier image because it doesn't just look like sort of jagged blur type stuff in the background. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't make out the architecture in this series as much as you can on the next generation where everything is just lit to the nines, you know, and you can see everything. It might not be uh, the, <clears throat> the colors aren't right and everything like that, but it's still you can make out what's going on Yeah, here. It feels like everything happens in a fo- on a foggy day at dusk on the ocean or something like everything is just kind of not quite right you can't quite make out what's going on in the background besides you see a couple lights or something like that yeah yeah that's a shame that would be that would be my choice but i uh well there's technical reasons that i don't understand about why this would be difficult but we're going to uh take a break i'll play a clip we'll come back give our final thoughts and ratings you wish to come no no (laughs) i don't think so one day as a task is enough for me and I've got a wife and kid that wouldn't fit too well into this lifestyle. Will your Federation punish you for helping me? Maybe. But if I know my commander... Uh... Hell, those guys wanted a hunt. I just gave them one. Gorn, you better get out of here while you still can. Oh, Brian. Die with honor, O'Brien. Die with honor, Tusk. All right, Kyle. Captain Pursuit. Do you have a? What do you want to give on our one to five scale here? I would give it. Can I? Can I split the rating? Yeah, like a three point five or something. That's exactly what I was going to say. Sure. Three, uh, strong 3.5, week four maybe. I think that this episode as a whole uh, is uh, pretty good, especially for the first season, which there are some rough patches. Um, it's a very DS9 episode. Uh, there's a lot going on in here that you can take apart, which is a really good thing, uh, both character-wise and situationally. And uh, there are some stuff that are a little overblown, uh, especially in terms of Trek, but on the whole... I think it's a pretty good entry, and you would enjoy it if you're a Trek fan. Yeah, I think it's um, it's certainly one of the stronger opening episodes. I'm going to give it a three, I think, out of five. I think it's um, it's it's an interesting look into Deep Space Nine, but it, it doesn't really blow my socks off or anything like that. I, I define a four as an episode that I would show to somebody who is unfamiliar with Star Trek, so it doesn't quite get to that level for me. Mm. Um it's solidly entertaining. It's much better than Babel. Um, it's all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> I, I I appreciate what they're trying to do here. I appreciate the fact that it's a different um, alien coming in. The The fact that, you know, we haven't talked about it too much, but the fact that stuff comes to you in this series is totally different than the... There are no repercussions to TOS and TNG because the ship just leaves when the story is over. You don't need to check in at the uh, every couple of months and see how things have gone. Right. And you get the... you get the. 
even though the characters on the Enterprise stay the same, you get the sense here that this is the kind of thing that would hang over Cisco's head when he's considering O'Brien about things. You know what I mean? Like this is, even though the characters never leave in any series, it feels like the the repercussions of what goes on feel like they stick more in Deep Space Nine in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, I agree. All right, and I think that uh, that's pretty much it. Kyle, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You guys can check out Trek's Batiste. I'll put links in the uh, description. Do you want to let people know what you've got coming out? I see I see that you uh, you had some things in the pipeline. Uh, I'm about to release an episode this week uh, that largely deals with um, epic poetry and Star Trek. Strange bedfellows, but uh, surprising. It worked out, yeah. And you're uh, are you waiting for coverage for Discovery? I am, actually. That's something we're planning on doing. We're going to do, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, weekly reviews as the episodes come out. Uh, sure. That's actually a big project for us because it takes us a long time to make an episode. Yeah. Uh, but so- I'm re- really excited about Discovery, and I think that that's a chance for us to really talk about uh, reviewing the episode. So you're going to do it in your s- typical style. It's not going to be sort of like a like a podcasty type thing. You're actually going to make a video essay about them. Uh, that's right. Yeah, we've got an artist, a really a really great artist, who's going to do some of the character work for us, and we're just going to animate those uh, those versions of the characters around to illustrate, you know, whatever's happening. I don't cool. know. Who knows what's going to happen with this show? Yeah, my sort of take is that um, no one knows anything. So we'll see what happens when it comes out, and we can all make our our snap judgments at that point. Yeah, yeah. The show will be we'll be reviewing uh, Discovery as they come out, and hopefully see how that goes. But oh, fantastic! Yeah, should be should be interesting. It's it's nice to have Star Trek back every once in a while. I can't uh, wait! I can't wait! Look, the modern age with all these cult shows going on, and Star Trek being the originator of all that, with the Game of Thrones, Watch Fest, and stuff. I can't imagine. The modern age, the internet age with Star Trek. I'm going to have to actually avoid spoilers. That's weird. I know, right? Yeah, just, I'm actually, uh, uh, I get yelled at a lot. I actually don't mind spoilers, so I am always sort of trolling around on Twitter when things are airing that I haven't seen yet. But yeah, it'll be, maybe I should probably, for the sake of the podcast, just kind of avoid everything so I can get the freshest uh, opinion, I guess, or at least an unvarnished opinion. Yeah. Anyway. Guys, check out Trexpertise, excellent YouTube channel. Does a lot of great uh, content. Some of it's Star Trek, most of it is sci-fi, and it's all very, very interesting. Um, for this show, you can check out all the social media links. They're all in the video description. They're in the podcast blurb. Go to all those things. Supporting us on Patreon is the only thing that I really ask you to consider. Um, it's helpful. It gets the show out there. You get a couple dollars a month. To us, you get extra podcasts. You get two extra podcasts a month if you give two bucks a month, and it's a, I think it's a value proposition that you can't turn down. Otherwise, I will hunt you down like a, a Tosk you are. But um, that's it, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. Kyle, thanks for coming on. Thank you. And, guys, I will, uh, I'll see you next time with Q-less. Q-less. I wonder what that one's about. That must be uh, that's a mysterious episode title. Q-less. See you then.